Jen Bosworth Ramirez. And I'm Gina Polici. We went to theater school together. We survived it, but we didn't quite understand it. 20 years later, we're digging deep, talking to our guests about their experiences and trying to make sense of it all. We survived theater school, and you will too. Are we famous yet? It's, and I'm scared, like... I think because partially this is this the main character is based on me like all our characters I think uh, every writer writes about themselves I don't care what you say yeah. uh, aspects of themselves so I'm like man would I do this stuff would I how far would I go to people please like that that mm-hmm. is what I'm wrestling with that is what is is how far do we go and how far would I go to people please now I don't think I'd go that far but people do go far people go far and feel like they're in a fugue state and feel like it wasn't them that was making the choice. And, and I believe that I believe that that can happen. I also just think it's interesting in the lens of like feeling, having felt for a long period of of your life that you weren't allowed to have certain emotions. It makes sense to me that you would be surprising yourself with where you can go in your imagination um, but that would also lead to, you know, surprisingly, like I, 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 we had a conversation one time on here where I said, I don't feel like I've ever seen you angry. So, and you, you said you do get angry, but I just wonder if maybe there's just a lot of unexpressed totally. anger and this is a great way to get it out. If totally. That's and I, and I think you're right. I think you're right on. And so, and I also think, and I wonder how, you know, uh, how you feel about the, the idea that writing right some i wonder if people write and i don't know how you write um but if people i mean i know a little how you write but if people um if people can ever write fully devoid from their own person you know like like Mm. where they don't put themselves in their characters or their if they're writing i guess maybe if you're writing nonfiction, i don't know but when you write do you agree that like it's part of you in every oh yeah 100 percent. and i i uh in reading the stephen king book about writing you know he he realized like years after the fact about the way that he was writing himself into his stories like i guess famously in in misery he, it's when he was at the height of drug addiction and he at the time he did not feel that he was writing the story about himself but that's what it ended up being yeah i mean in part just because like how else would you do it i mean you only have your own as close as you can be to anybody else what you really are stuck with 24 7 is the ruminations in your own mind the reactions to things your worldview your worldview is is so people can recognize a lot of things about their worldview but then there's all kinds of things about their own perspective that they would never think unless they had occasion to see it contrasted with something else and say oh wow i think about that really differently so anyway i think it's cool i think it's great that you're uh going there and i'm excited to see where it goes hey let me run this by you Um, I started seeing, uh, so I had a therapist that was this Orthodox Jewish man that I stopped seeing. It was just, it, it, I always, what I, you know, and it's so blatant at the time uh, after, but during, during, I never see, like, I'm looking for like a father figure and, and, um, he started to say things that were, mm, and it's all on, on the phone, you know, but like he has six kids 
And he wanted to, he started saying things like, do you think that this is because you never had kids? Kind of like, why my emotions? And I said, you know, I don't know. It could be, but I, and you know, it was, it's interesting. So I just had to say, you know what? Um, so-and-so, I think that I'm going to take a pause on this. I just don't feel that we're, I was proud of myself. I said, I just don't feel like it's a good match right now for me, a good fit. I couldn't just say, it's so funny. I have to qualify it. Like I couldn't just say this isn't a good fit. I was like, not a fit right now for me at this moment (laughs) try to soften the just ridiculous Mm -hmm. stuff but that's how I did it and yeah and um so I I was like okay well do I want to get another therapist or do I want to so I uh, do see like a coach like what do I want to do so I started seeing I had a first session with a coach outside in a park who's a um she coaches, she does a lot of career coaching, but I just like, I've known her for a while and I like her and we got to some interesting stuff like, you know, and you've said some stuff about um, like inner child stuff. Like um, I never really felt like I could connect with the idea of making peace or taking care of my inner child mm-hmm. and, and I couldn't understand why. And I think I got to the point where the reason I, I'm afraid two things that my inner child will hurt me and Ooh. or that I will hurt it her. Huh. Yeah. So so I thought I'd tell you about that this huh. hurt That's- hurt hurt you any idea what you mean by that like sabotage like my inner child is so angry at the way that my parents and then i have been treating her that she will fuck things up hmm yeah by misbehaving yes misbehaving sabotaging um so there's not a trust there there's not a trust and whenever whenever in the various forms of therapy and schooling that i've done in this area i always felt really it's not even that i bristled with when we did inner child work it's like i thought well i don't even know this is weird i don't even know what this is what is this yeah yeah, I to- I can totally relate. And I think I have had the same exact opinion, this very cynical sort of point of view. It all seems so, I, I would just want to roll my eyes talking about inner child. But I think it's like that thing that I was telling you about when I did that thing on Clubhouse and everybody was playing and I was just afraid of it. I think it's just that. I think you learn to hide the parts of yourself that get you in trouble in the world for whatever reason. And then if they're parts of yourself that you first identify when you're very young, they're locked away good. They're locked away real good. And there's a real, um, I mean, just intense fear about going there. And, and I guess like the best signal that I have about that is that every time I start to think about it or talk about, it, I start to cry, which is okay. Well, there's obviously a lot there. I, I don't believe See, my thing about it is like for a long time, I did therapy. I did, I've total in total, I've probably done therapy, I'm going to say for like 10 years between different therapists. It's not that I think I'm done. It's not, you know, it's not that I don't want to be in therapy. There are reasons that I'm not in it right now. Um, But I just very quickly, uh, in talking about my childhood, became like, okay, but. I talked about it and now I'm just complaining or, you know, now this is just, when are you going to get over? And that's the voice of like everybody in my family, like get over it. 
everybody's everybody hurts like not even not not even everybody hurts just like get over it you're a grown-up there's no time for that anymore and I that is a voice that I cannot quiet in my own head so whereas at one point in my life I thought I had done all that because I did 10 years of therapy now I realize I just never even approached it I stuck with things that were more happening in my life now or like I would spent a lot of time like crying about my dad or whatever, but it wasn't like, it's, you know, that was about him. It was right. about me talking about him. It wasn't really about me talking about me because I think when I started talking about myself, that's when all of the walls and defenses went up and I was like, you know, and I, and I couldn't do it. And Aaron has said to me a number of times, like, you've never really dealt with this stuff. And I, and I've just been so incredulous. Like, of course I have, I've done, I've dealt with it a ton, but I really haven't <laughs> yeah. I, I haven't done I've done like layers of it but I right. haven't I haven't done all the layers yeah and I I totally hear that and I can totally relate to not feeling to feeling like I haven't really touched on it and the reason I know that I haven't gotten to the core of sort any inner child work is that yesterday when I was when she had me doing an exercise outside in the park um like just trying to approach my inner child we the only way I could make contact with her was across a field with loud noise in the background with me yelling and her yelling back so like not screaming at each other but like there was had to be a barrier like I couldn't the intimacy of approaching her straight on was too much so I was like hi I'm over here and she said hi I'm over there and she was like really suspicious of me and stuff that I knew like oh I'm really having uh I have a lot of trepidation about approaching this part of myself and so I have to have a separation like a a barrier it has to be it has to be moderated it can't be like i can't just walk up to her there's no way in hell there's no way what's it like when you look at pictures of yourself when you were really young what do I, you think about i feel like i don't even know who that person is yeah i have the same exact whereas i now this just could be the difference between look, thinking about yourself and thinking about another person when I look at even very, very young, young baby pictures of my kids, I think, oh, yeah, their personality was there, you know, from the beginning, this is who they still are. And sometimes I'll share, I'll show them something and they'll say, you know, they, they, it seems like they kind of recognize, yeah, that's me. Whereas I look at that person and I think, I mean, I've seen this picture before, but I, I have, what, who is that per I, yeah, I've just have no idea. I think, I, what I basically did starting in theater school uh, is just form a whole new, just start over. I just formed a whole new identity. I was just like, uh, not to the point that some people get like my sister where they tell everybody their parents are dead. Right. and But to the point of just, yeah, I'm this person now. And, you know, and I'm, and I'm done with that other person, whoever she was. I hated her no matter what. Yes. And of course, the realize, realization I have recently is, no, but I still hate myself. So I really haven't a changed divorce. And I, and there's a, you can't walk away from who you are. You have, you have to contend with it. Right. And, and, and I, I, my coach Deanna was like, I said, I don't know who that person is. And she said, she's you, you just haven't integrated her yet. Like there it's you. And I was like, oh, I, I, I saw it as a separate sort of, so it's interesting. And she said trauma, you know, we talked about neuroplasticity of the brain and trauma and 
and how it's rewiring. Like, so, and she's like, I don't really believe in, well, I don't know if she said this, but I got kind of got the feeling she was like, she didn't really believe in mantras and all that. But she said, what happens, what do you start telling yourself when you, um, are scared or when you have an audition that's scared, I say, I'm going to screw this up. That's my mantra. I'm going to somehow screw this up. I'm going to, some. she's like, all right, we have to cut that off immediately. She's like, I don't care what you say, but you can't say that to yourself anymore. So I was like, okay, what can I believe? Like, what can I get stand behind? Because I'm not going to say, oh, I'm the greatest actor and everything. No, no, no. I don't believe that. I don't believe that at all. But what I do believe, it, I do have evidence to show in my heart and in my bones that things have, that everything is happening at the time it's supposed to be happening. I do believe that. I do. I can stand behind that. I can't say it's good. I can't say it's awesome, but I can say, so she said, all right, we're just going to go with that. So now like, you know, I think, oh, what if I get a callback for this role I really want? And I know I'm going to fuck it up. And I said, nope, it's going to happen. If, if, if I do fuck it up, it's going to be because it was the time to fuck it up. <laughs> like yeah. I have to believe in the timing of things. Cause I can't really believe in the goodness of things. Is that, you know, right. Right. And sort of similar to that is how I'm always just thinking in my mind that I'm just starting over, that I'm always just putting the other, the past behind me. Um, it, it's, that's not, you You can't really do that. And, and it's all, it's all, every phase you're in, every experience you go through, every part, every iteration of yourself is a part of whatever it is now. It's not, it, so What's what this is making me think about is when I was a, in private practice, I became sort of known for treating really severe trauma cases, and so almost all of them had um, DID. And um, the technique for integration when a person has multiple selves, and it, just for people who are listening, it's not like Sybil. Sybil and you, you bark like a dog, whatever. It's really a lot more subtle than that. Now, in severe cases, people have these fugue states where they go and they're just doing something else. I mean, I had, I had clients who would get themselves, they would go into a fugue state and then do terrible things that right. I mean, really dangerous, dangerous, terrible thing. But the technique is you have them all sit around a conference table. You and, and what's amazing to me is if if you're talking to a person who suffers with this and they've never heard this technique before, they never go conference table. They go, okay, yeah. They're, I mean, they're just immediately like, oh, that's a good idea. They can all come together because they're in their experience, they feel or see, and they all have very often they all have different names and different ages and they have different things and they fight with each other about what they're doing. So I say, let's just do the conference table thing. Let's have everybody meet together and let we can work on the agenda. But like the, the underwriting, overriding thing has to be we, whatever we do, we want to do it united. And what yes. it gets tricky is when you're, you're not doing it united and everybody's, and that's the sabotage thing. That's what you get a lot of it. The sabotage thing is like this one is, and it's all because it was all a coping strategy for not being able to, you know, the parts of yourself that were rejected by whomever get shunted. They don't go away. They just get shunted off into another part of you. And it's funny because I really see a lot of my dysfunction feels splintered like that. Like 
I can say I can click into a mode that's happy, happy and positive. And but then if I'm not feeling happy and positive, then it's like I'm not that person anymore. I'm just this other sad, depressed person. Or sometimes I'm, you know, so yes. I have, we all have it to some degree. And and I feel it a little too. It doesn't feel like different parts of me that have different names, but it still feels like it needs a lot more integrating. Yes, I totally agree with that. And the other thing I worry about, and I think, uh, and I, I don't know if you've ever worried, I worry that my the that part of myself, the small, vulnerable, whatever, I would say five or six-year-old part of myself is going to disclose some even more deep trauma happened. Okay, there you go. That's probably exactly right. <laughs> yeah. And mm -hmm. I don't want to, and I am like, I don't know if I can handle that. Like I, mm -hmm. so she is the keeper of secrets of when I was young and who knows yeah. what the hell really went on. Like yeah. I, it could have been worse than I thought is the, is the, mm -hmm. is the, is the overarching I fear. I can see why you would be afraid then. Yeah. To... It's like, yeah. I wonder if, I wonder if part of your way in is going to be instead of, or like in addition to fearing that is like, yeah, that's scary, but she needs help. She yeah. needs rescuing. Yeah. You that's know? what, that's what Deanna said too. It was like, the, you, you, she needs to be seen and heard. Yeah. And that's your way to freedom. And I was like, what? Cause I, whenever someone says the way to freedom, I'm like, that interests me because yeah. freedom from such self-doubt, freedom from such self-loathing or fear, you know, self like freedom from that seems amazing. So if someone tells me you want to get free from this, you know, as long as they're not telling me some whack do stuff, but you, you want freedom from this thing, then it's going to take a certain amount of work. I'm like that, that I'm curious and I will do that work to get free. to our listeners um, that the experience of doing this podcast has people are always reporting to us. Oh, I've reconnected with people. I'm, I'm healing things and remembering things, but th that's true for us too. And um, I have reconnected with people that I haven't spoken to in a number of years. And it's so gratifying. I mean, that that's actually another piece of this disintegration thing is like the person I was when I was in theater school and the friends I had. And I just basically, with the exception of you, just moved on from that and never looked back. And, you know, these are people uh, that I love, that I loved then. And that, you know, as I'm reconnecting with them, I'm like, oh, yeah, you're amazing. And I'm just so grateful that we're having the opportunity to do this. I this is what college reunions are meant to do, but they don't because it's kind of like one, you know, it's just, it's all because you just get through one layer of like, well, what do you look like and what are you doing at, you know, as of, and, and I guess social media has changed that for people like they get a better sense, but, but that's, even that is not the same as actually talking to somebody who you haven't talked to. And then now I'm like texting with people and it's fun. It's and then the other thing, which I've mentioned to you at least once before, but I'm still thinking about a lot is the people who I don't remember, but who remember me, to me, that means I, I have just been so self-absorbed that, that to, to a great degree, when I think back uh, about that time, I, I almost can only think about myself and how 
I felt about things and whether I was getting, you know, treated well or, you know, instead of like the fact, I mean, and not, I guess that's human, but I just feel like if there's somebody who remembers me, then there's a re- then the reason that I don't remember them is not anything other than I was just paying only attention to myself. Yeah. And I, and I have compassion for myself about it because I, you know, was just doing the best I could, but I'm interested in going back and healing those rifts too, because I, I think that something happens that has happened to me over time is like, I was never the most popular or the least popular. I was always in the middle which meant that I ended up looking down on the people who were less popular than me and, mm. and looking up to and resenting the people. So it was, I was just seeing everything in terms of like status status. Yeah. That's what it is. I, I have been entirely status obsessed in a way that I, is a complete surprise to me. I, ah. I had no idea that I was status obsessed and it makes sense because that's how my parents are. That's how everybody, I mean, that's how a lot of people are. Why would I be, unique why would I be exempt from that well that's the thing I mean I think that we that I get got so I get so trapped in thinking I'm uniquely where I'm at and that is garbage I am a unique human because everyone is to a certain extent and then we're all the freaking same we're all worried about what we look like what we sound like who, what what we, other people think of us? What other people think of us, and um, how we're coming off, and you know that's part of being human. But I think you're right. I think for me as well, when people remember things I don't remember, people were like, "Yeah, we were friends," and I'm thinking, "We were friends," and that is because I was too busy probably thinking about myself and what else I could do or why. It's it's what they say in twelve step programs really about self centered fear. It's like mm-hmm. I'm so self-centered and, and special it, worm i'm special I'm worm sh- i'm shit but i'm uh, but i'm, I'm the, the best I'm, yeah. I'm the best shit yeah. or i'm the special worm and i'm not a worker among workers you know like it's it's right. it's an interesting thing and we come by it see the thing that's really also interesting to me is that we come by it honestly that is the part that i have to remember it's that people come by this shit honestly including yes. me i'm not yeah. so special that i don't come by it honestly it's not right it, you know yeah, it's I mean, amazing. right. Yeah, I think it is. It's completely amazing. I'm completely great. I, I'm, and apropos of our conversation that we had a while ago about like constantly evaluating our progress, like when I can get away from doing that, I'm just full of gratitude for, for, for what we're, what we've already done, even if we never did it again after right. this. What we've already done has been so personally helpful. Yeah, me too. And I do see it as a way also as, as we move forward as artists, as a way of building allyship with people that I once looked at as not nemesis maybe, but like as adversaries or doing better than me or doing worse than me. Or now it's, it just seems more, um, they're equal. Like I feel more equal with people. And I think that's a better way to go. Cause the other way is like, Oh, it's also just the truer way to go. Right. Like it's just a lie. We tell right. ourselves when, when we think we're so, sp- it's like, yeah. Okay. But I mean, among other things, it's simply a false, which is why like <laughs> things like the, like organized, um, 
like army and stuff works because you all get put in basic training and no one is better than the, the we're, you're all low, lowest on the totem pole. And I think that builds some kind of camaraderie. And mm-hmm. um, yeah. So anyway, I just, I just, I don't know why I was thinking about that, but I like that idea. I uh, I started to watch some of the showcase this year's DePaul Theater Those School my, showcase. Yes, I, and I was just curious if you had seen any of it. I have seen it, and it, you know, it's interesting. I the the way that they filmed it for the most part, it's the same camera shots, right? Of each. Yeah. And I'm like, okay, okay. I think they we could have been a little more original with that, but I think they were trying to be equal to everybody and not quote do. And, well, and, that, and also it's not a film school. I no. mean, you know, uh, to, I, I, right. I, for that reason, I give it a lot of credit right. because it's like, Oh wow. I, what if somebody had been tasked doing that in our year? I'm, I'm not certain we would have gotten anywhere. It would have I been mean, a video <laughs> camera shaking and like, yeah, yeah, no. Yeah. So People, it's cool. I'm, I'm happy for them that they have this. I mean, I'm happy for them that they have this access it probably has the same effect that it did when we did the in-person thing, which is like not a lot, unless they're going to move to LA. Um, But what I thought was interesting is looking at the acting and just remembering, like talk about not being special. We all did bad acting in the same way, you know, which is to say not connected, not real, very, very, uh, self-monitoring of like yes. how is this coming across you can see people thinking that how is this coming across versus there was a few people who was like oh no they're in it they're totally yeah. there they're they're it's just and and I say this with so much compassion because I think probably the entire time I was just looking I was just observing myself I'm uh, sure I did a terrible job yeah and I can say it too and I you it, it sticks out when someone's really in it and it is so hard and we've said this and I, I I think we we've talked about this on the podcast it's so hard to know get there it's hard to get to stop the self-monitoring to be in the moment and just tell the story or be in the it's so hard so when it happens and you see it you're like oh that's gold that's mm-hmm, gold mm-hmm. and and it's not to say that you know we all get there at different times and we have different moments of it but yeah yeah, what's hard to account for, I mean, you know, to a certain degree, there is only so much teaching that somebody can do uh, of actors, because what you really need also is just these life experiences that either do or don't lead you in the direction of really understanding yourself. And if you're a person who is not interested in understanding yourself, you're probably pretty limited as an actor or, yep. or like, or maybe even very successful, but just at one, you know, yes. Like, right. Right. One thing. You might, you might make a million dollars, but as we talked about it, that does not equal being in the moment and being a, a, a truly like for me in, in an experience, just because you made a million dollars doing it does yeah. not. I, I, it's a recent, recent, recent discovery that worth and, money are not necessarily the same oh my god oh my god hello (laughs) capitalism me too girl me too i'm just like oh oh, right right yeah because actually there are other i've heard this phrase it's not always about money but i really have never lived it i have always been like no no but it's it's always yeah it's always about money (laughs) 
Today on the podcast, we're talking with Edward Ryan. Edward is someone who went to the theater school at DePaul University and then left and then went on to have many adventures and different um, incarnations as an artist and is still on that adventure. And he's thoughtful and kind. So please enjoy our conversation with Edward Ryan. I was I was a year below you guys. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Edward Ryan, congratulations. You survived theater school. I did. Twice. Twice. Yeah, because you just went back a few years ago to get your degree. I did. So tell us about that. I'm so uh, excited. It was a very different... uh... (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, when I did uh, do some local theater, like a while ago, I met um, a costumer and his name was Frank. And he wound up teaching at a really small private school in Springfield, Massachusetts. And he's basically started a theater program there. Uh, it's called American International College. And um, he said to me one day, like, how come you never, you know, finished your degree? He was like, give me your transcripts. And I, I, I got my transcripts. And he was like, you could be done in like a year and a half or two years um, and have a degree. What I didn't know I was going to be so, um, you know, affected by was it. it's a school that... Um, serves a lot of sort of underserved communities. So there's a lot of first-generation Americans, a lot of first-generation college students. And in contrast to a place like DePaul, although we complained about the the building on uh, North Kenmore, the facility, there's nothing. I mean, they have nothing, these kids. And, um, but their like passion and their drive is really what, you know, is so inspirational, you know, and they're like, we can make theater out of anything, you know, out of nothing. And, um, it was kind of a strange situation because Frank and I were very good friends, you know, so all of a sudden he was like my professor and uh, I mostly had to do academic classes uh, to graduate there. You know, they took all my credits and I, re- I did a um, history of theater. I, f- I was like for like the third time I studied <laughs> like all of, you know, um, this time I wasn't able to cheat as easily. Uh, oh, I remember cheating. I did cheat. Oh my God. Anna Konamekos had every test that, Doc O'Malley, whatever his name was, Doc O'Malley gave us. Oh, hilarious. Oh, my God. So funny. And I've always been really studious, but like second year, I was like, oh, yeah, you know, give them up. (laughs) Give them up. That's funny because I don't, I don't actually remember the cheating thing, but when Dave Desmalshin was on, he, he referenced that. I guess it was widespread. I mean, you know, in a yeah. way I'm sure they were like, oh, these kids, they're, they're so dumb. Just like <laughs> something easy. <laughs> Give the same test every year, year after year after year. Exactly. And luckily I, I lived with second years. So it was like, and, and you know, Anne, she had them all like, she's a stage manager, dramaturge, had them all in a file. I just had to go in every week and pull it out. Yeah. But how did you, I mean, are you the, one of the people who just got a brochure from DePaul and that's how you went? With, yeah, with this jester on the front. I remember oh, I remember that one I, too. <laughs> I never went to visit the school. I auditioned in New York and um, it was, you know, uh, I had applied to NYU and I had an audition set up, but there were auditions for some reason. I didn't audition at the same time. And it was like really late. And I applied to Providence College. That was if I wanted to like go the more academic route. Um, damn it. <laughs> um, and I, I remember going for my audition and I, I like heard really quickly that I got into DePaul and I just decided I never even went on my audition for NYU. I, um, 
I thought that the city would probably be a little too, you know, I was, I lived near the city. Mm -hmm. So it was like always my grandfather lived in the city and I thought that's going to be too much of a distraction, you know, and I really wanted to, you know, get an education. So um, I went to Chicago and I flew out and my parents drove all my stuff out. And what, like, what did you make of it day one? What was, where was your head at with it? I was like, Chicago is so clean. Mm -hmm. Um, Compared to New York. Yeah, it really is. I lived in Seton Hall and I lived on the fourth floor in the corner room that was like ginormous with Cedric was Cedric uh, Steins was my roommate. And we had this other third roommate um, that we never liked. And then he got kicked out of the dorms like halfway through the year. So um, we had this great, you know, big room. And uh, it was right above. I felt like the Blues Brothers because you looked at our window and then like the L tracks yeah. went right by. But it was really close to Taco Burrito Palace. And, TVP! Um, oh, my God. I forgot all about TVP. Oh, is that still there, Roses? Boz? Uh, I, I, I think they – well, they have many. You know, there's like okay. one, two, three, four, five, six. Right. I think that one is actually still there. <laughs> that place, like, on a Friday or Saturday night was, like, you couldn't get near no. it. And Rose's Tavern oh, yeah. was the other, like, whole – that the Mesopotamian woman who was like, let anybody drink. If you were, if you could walk, you could drink. <laughs> she was, was, she was giving know. toddlers shots of you. Yeah. Seriously. <laughs> I wouldn't be surprised. And there were some sordid characters in that joint. I mean, Absolutely. I remember like winding up at some apartment and being like, wow, oh, I shouldn't be here. <laughs> what am I doing here? So, but you left, you left after your second year. Yeah. Okay. And it was rough. You said you had a rough go of it. It was. I was. I was planning on living there. So I was living there for the summer. I was living with Cedric again, and then Noel Rath. Oh, yeah. Uh, was that it? Yeah. And um, we were living like sort of west of everything, like up Armitage. It was like desolate. It was like this really weird apartment where I had the closet as my room, and um, I just remember like taking out the garbage. I had to go out the back door through this garage, and there was like this Harley biker who was always hanging out in there. I don't know if it, I was just like, this is where children get you yeah. know, like molested. I can't, you know, it was odd. And uh, Cedric left and he went to Africa. There was a trip to like Africa. And I remember Susan Lee was on that trip because he was like, he called us and he was like, oh, I met Susan Lee. And um, wait, and then wait, we got our me, like, Sus- wait a minute, wait, wait, wait. Susan Lee was just randomly the- in Africa. With yes, girl. Don't you remember? That's when she came back and said to Erica, oh, I've got to teach you African dance. Okay. Uh, um, but, you know, I really, I really, I was like, you know, I was kind of shocked about it. And, you know, I think it was a lot for me to go there. You know, I'm the youngest of five. And then my mother had remarried and I had four step kids. So my parents had like nine kids under the age of like 30 and, you know, financially that no matter how much money you make, I think it's a, it's a burden. And uh, I was really committed to like the theater school and I uh, didn't have a warning that was sort of, you know, productive. I remember going to Rick Murphy's office and not having any warning my first year going in and sitting down him being like, you're fine. Get out of here. You know? And then my second year, he was like, what the fuck is going on with you? You know? And he's like, what's up with Trudy Kessler? And I was like, I don't know. She hates me. <laughs> and uh, he was like, get your shit together or something like that. You know, but there was no like sort of actionable steps. And then when I wasn't asked back, I was like, wow. And you were talking about mushrooms. 
So for the first time I ate mushrooms and I wandered around Chicago and I found all these incredible places. I was like, oh my God, like Appalstead and all the, I was like, and I came, I realized I was like in my own backyard. I thought I was lost, but I, you know, I have like some uh, journal entries about that, how like Sundays are the best day in the world. Everybody does what they want. Even God rested on Sundays. Fantastic. Um, and it was, you know, it was so much fun. Yeah. All by myself, just wandering around the city. But she well, Lincoln Park, especially. Me, I mean, you know, you know we, it, it was people like, oh, there. right. Speaking of that, I remember um, I was dying during Eric Slater's interview because we got a phone call at like 6 a.m. one day at apartment two <laughs> downstairs. And it was Eric and he was, he had been arrested. And it must have been when you guys were doing Androcles and the Lion because he he was like walking home. It was really late. He was walking home from our house, I guess. And the cops just stopped him and arrested him. And we were like, he had to what? be like at the Merle Reskin Theater for this performance like that morning. And I think we wound up calling John Bridges. And it turned out they had just taken an interview and needed people for a lineup. And he looked like a shady character. <laughs> they needed to call people like us. I don't know. But I wanted to oh, ask. Wait, so, I, so I, wait a I, minute. I, uh, this is a total digression, but I always thought in lineups, they got other criminal, like people that they know. They no. Just, and they, they can just random, take you? Yeah, they get ran. I don't know about now, but you used to just random ass people for lineups. Yeah. But the way you get them there is by arresting them? Well, I think you can. I, apparently in Chicago. <laughs> I think he was probably drunk. He was probably stumbling. Yeah. Maybe he was like, had a few years and they were just like oh yeah you know, public drunkenness let's go but that was like one of the funniest and it was like the day that my mother called me it was like crisis you know we went into crisis mode and was like you know, <laughs> know she got out her clipboard and like gave us all the assignments and then my mother called me that morning and she was like is everything all right and I always thought I was like you know my mom just yes. she has that like intuition you know and um, I was like, everything's fine. You know, like, um, and I remember saying to her, I'm like, I think you're psychic, mom. She always but knew. Wait, so, but so you're, you're saying really you had day. no, you didn't, it was, there was no, I mean, there was a warning without any information in it or. Yeah, there wasn't really anything specific, you know. And uh, like I said, I had Trudy Kessler my second year um, for voice and speech. And I had had Ruth Rutberg who you, she was there for a really, um, you know, short period of time. And then she left, she came back and she was like, Oh, I got a contract. I'll be here next year. And then she came back like the next week and was like, I'm leaving. And she got a job at Yale and she went off to teach at Yale and she taught Kristen Linklater's work. And then Trudy, our second year, and I was sort of excited to, I guess first she taught Lasak and other things. And she, was doing Linklater again. So it was sort of like the same class again in a row. And um, I think Ruth was a really great Linklater teacher. And I, I don't know if, um, I don't know, Trudy and I just had something. I still, t- I, I'm, I, I'm still in contact with Ruth. She's my Alexander technique teacher now. And um, there was a 13 year gap in our relationship, but uh She'll always say like, "Oh, I'm going to this conference." And tell, tell Trudy, I said hi, you know, because um, when I got my letter, it said um, that 
I had three absences from voice and speech. And to this day, I say, no, I didn't. I would have never done that. Like I was pretty committed. She, I had a full frenum. So I was born like tongue tied and she was like, I want you to go. I never had any speech issues. Um, but she's like, I want you to go see this doctor. So I went to see this doctor bastion and, uh, he was an ear, nose and throat guy that worked with actors in Chicago. And he was like, Oh my God, let me clip it. He's like, I've never gotten what to do it? one. What is you it? Know, let me do it. And is. I was like, so it's the little thing yeah. uh, underneath your tongue. So it's it actually tethers okay. your tongue behind your bottom teeth. Like everybody's develops that way. When you're born, it recedes. Um, if you're not, they usually just clip it when you're born, but they never discovered mine. And um, so I wound up letting this doctor like do it. And then I had rehearsal for like my intro with Trudy. And I just remember meeting her in her office and her being like sticking her thumb in my mouth. And being like, oh, yeah, you have a significant overbite. Like, um, and just saying, like, you know, you don't have a speech issue, but maybe if you got your tongue, you know, released, it would change your speech. You know, let's, I would love to see what it does. You know, I just felt like I was pretty committed to it. And David was my acting teacher second year. And uh, in David's class, it was like I could do no wrong. You know what I mean? I remember, like, almost hating it. Like... Um, him being like some like okay, you know you'd critique each other's like scenes or improvs or whatever you were doing, and he would say, um, "So who saw what you know Ed was doing?" And somebody was you know critiquing it, and they were like, "What do you?" He was like, "You know, what are you talking about?" Like he was like, "He was fine." Like he was like, "My opinion's the only one that matters." So you know, um, and just being like, "Okay, so now they hate wait." Me I, I have to say, I'm shocked uh, that you know usually the story is that the second year acting teacher hates your guts and then you get cut. Like that was my experience. Um, Cause I was cut and then asked back crazy, crazy. But, but it's right. interesting that David that thought you could do no wrong in your, as your acting teacher. Well, well it was really weird because I had David uh, and first quarter I was in David's intro and he gave me a better grade in my intro than he did in acting class. And I remember him saying to me, do you know why I did that? And me being like, yeah, right. <laughs> like, and really having no clue. But I remember, I remember getting into a fight with him in that rehearsal for that intro and him saying something to me. And I'm like, okay, well, what, what, what do you want? And he was like, I don't know what, I, you know, just, you better try something else. Cause that's not working. Like he yelled at me and everybody was like, <gasps> and David and I used to take these walks around the block at the theater school and have these little chats. And he was like, um, you know, he, he, he gave me every indication that he thought I was talented. And then I remember my second year, him saying to me, do you really want to be here for another two years? And I was like, well, yeah, you know, I really want a degree. And he was like, what are you going to get out of a Shakespeare class? With Susan Lee? <laughs> and I remember, and I was like, I don't know. And then I remember, um, telling him about my issues with Trudy and him being like, you know, Trudy, he's like, I'm the head of the voice and speech, which I didn't even, didn't really even know at the time, you know, Such it was odd mess. to me that he was. And, and then, but then he gave me, but then he gave me a bad grade, like in acting class. And so it was sort of like this, I was like, what the fuck? <laughs> like what, you know? Um, and I just, you know, and then in my intros, I was always like a middle-aged alcoholic um, like every single one, you know, or the, I was okay. like the alcoholic vicar in that horrible uh, 
farce that Dad Ilko did, where my like I'd walk in the room and my pants what was would fall that? down my ankles, what, what or uh, you know, and oh yeah, it was called habeas that. corpus. It was like first yeah. of all, farce is tough. You know, it's a tough, and for some reason they thought you know. Uh, and I heard this a lot about our class. Like, oh, these guys could do it. Like, they could grasp it. Well, guess what? We couldn't. And it fucking sucked. It was just, like, ridiculous. I was like, oh, am I in right, Betty? Is right. Betty Hill? Is that what I'm doing? Like, It's also really you know, hard it was to be just... funny when you're that but old. Then I... it, 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 it's hard mm-hmm. to be funny. Yeah, it, it, I don't care. Experience, yeah. Right. Life right. experience, it makes you funny. And then I remember seeing David's, like, intro second quarter. It was, like, Bomb and Gilead. And I was like why don't I get to play one of these like transvestite hookers? Like I could do that. Um, and then it just wasn't. And then it was like the autumn garden oh. with Trudy was my last one. And again, it was like, I mean, Erica Yancey, I drank so much peach tea my second year of, cause the dining room was my first one. And it was like all of these like waspy, you know, uh, I played like one little boy. That's the scene we, we, we sort of had a yelling match about, but, um, it was, uh, so I don't know. I mean, I was, I was, I remember Noel being like, I got in and you didn't. And I was just like, I don't really, the thing was, I thought they stopped going to New York for the, uh, and I was like, I didn't ever have a desire to be on television or in the movies. I wanted to be in the theater and I went to the theater school and I sort of saw that transitioning transition happening. It was kind of like, I have no desire to live in LA. I just think it's like veneers and fake boobs. Like that's all I could think of when I'm thinking of LA. Like it was a desert. Everything there is artificial. Like every every blade of grass is like planted. Um, I don't know. And I thought I was okay with it uh, for a while because when I moved home and my stepfather died kind of suddenly like that summer. And you know, it was one of those things like, okay, everything happens for a reason, you know, um, it's really hard on my mom my father had passed away. Um, but he was sick for a really long time. And so I think she was like prepared for that. And she wasn't really prepared for my stepfather dying. And, uh, so I was okay with it for a long time, but I really, um, till recently realized, like, I think it really, you know, I remember somebody calling me and asking me to do a a play and not wanting to do it Um, because I had done a lot of musical theater. And I was like, when I did my first play, I was like, why don't musical theater is so hard. I'm like, why am I doing this? Like, you know, I sang a lot, but I was like, I hate singing. (laughs) You know, I really don't even like it. Um, And I just thought, you know, I never saw myself as any Shakespeare characters. Like I was like, you know, I, I had to read every male part in high school in English class. I read every like male part while the teacher read every female part. And I was like, I hate Shakespeare. Um, maybe this isn't the place for me. Um, what was disappointing about it is that I wanted a degree, you know, and I was a good student. And um, I think that uh my circumstances just sort of allowed me to sort of flounder a bit and not really have a, a footing, um, not really have any direction, you know, although I had, you know, some great mentors and I did do some more theater, uh, and, uh, but very little. And then I moved to New York and it was really not about that. You know, it was about, um, 
to see what else was out there. Uh, I decided I was like, okay, I'm moving to New York. And uh, I had worked for J crew for a couple of years and I had left and uh, I called them up and was like, I'm moving to the city. I, I need a job. And they gave me a, a job and uh, I started going out in the city. Somebody took me to a nightclub and it was like the first time ever. I was like, you know, we would go see, I, we, I saw the last Grateful Dead show in Chicago. Like uh, we went to fish. Yeah. Um, oh, yeah. Urbana when we were out there. Um, and when I went into this, like, sort of world of these nightclubs and sort of saw all of these, like, characters that were present, I sort of um, became one, you know? I was, it was like my job to go out and, and have fun and sort of uh, clown and, and, when, was, when was, was this? Can I ask what year this life. was? I like to call it the turn of the last century, but it was like from, so I guess I I moved to the city from uh, like 98 till 2000, or I guess it was 99 okay. till 2003 was when I moved here. So I was there for about four years. Um, you know, I worked at the World Trade wow. Center. Um, that was, a you know, uh, and I think that, compounded things and I think it sort of made me realize that I was having a lot of fun in New York you know I had this I had great roommates we had a great uh loft in Brooklyn these crazy parties that were like um before Brooklyn was cool I say like we priced ourselves out of it you know we made it cool and then but it was not something I could sustain or really even um, monetize. You know, there was always like um, the job that I had to maintain to um, live, but I really had no desire to do theater. And I didn't for about another 10 years till I um, moved here. And, uh, and I was okay with that. You know, I was sort of, working in retail and I realized, you know, later that the whole going out and becoming this like <clears throat> character, which I didn't really think I was doing at the time, but I really was, you know, um, doing things that I had never done before, or, you know, even, um, these parties were like insane. We would like wear like Russian military uniforms and have 200 people in a Japanese go-go band wow. at our house and, uh, fill up we would like fill up kiddie pools with water. All We had a great space. And so <clears throat> we did, and I lived with a, a caricature artist and um, all these kids from Vassar. And um, it was just, uh, you know, we'd get like a sitar player and uh, oh and absence and have like an, an oh opium den. And what? Uh, you know, I just they have wrote, a question. I have to go back to what was your character? Like, what was your, your nightclub character? So I always joked that I looked like, like Huckleberry Finn, you know, I was working for J crew, but I would, I was just myself, you know, I, I would, I had my baseball cap and I had this baseball cap that said ACK, which is actually the three letter code for Newark airport. And, or I'm sorry, for Nantucket Airport. My initials are the Newark, three-letter yeah, code for E-W-R. Newark Airport. <coughs> and, 
And um, people, and so ACK people, um, and I would like have my pants rolled up different. You know, I worked for J Crew, so I was like a walking like, you know, the J Crew like twist how it used to be, pants rolled up at different lengths and like a maybe, or I'd wear like a a crusher hat or something, and I'd get in line with these people who were like going to Bang Bang and buying right. their like you know tight leather pants and stuff, and it just became like this. I was you know I was kind of like uh quirky you know i dress I, I i danced a little funny i and i attribute movement to music to that you know i sort of just followed these impulses that had me sort of stomping my feet a lot and i danced with my face a lot and um i would show up with like a big bunch of gerber daisies and a couple inflatable sunshines and um you know, I had one friend, Franco, who's the only person I ever went out with. I could always go out by myself and, you know, leave by myself. And I would just, you know, I'd do these fun things. Like, you know, I wrote like a Valentine to the world and like, you know, we put on red paper and pass it out to everybody or we would, um, we'd bring junior mints to junior was the DJ and, um, pass them out to everybody. It was performance art. You, know, you were just doing do performance silly, art. Yeah, and people, you know, I was talking about the hat. People would say, like, like, what does ACK stand for? What does ACK stand for? And I got, you know, I was like, oh, it's a three-letter code for Newark Airport. And I got so sick of it, I started this thing, like, ack, it's the hairball remover that cat <laughs> asked for by name. You know, like, and I didn't really, I never, you know, I, I still sort of felt like I didn't belong there. You know, it was kind of like this secret uh thing but you know you go places all the time and then people start you know recognizing you and you know you start like getting in for free or um you know and I found these places where it just seemed I was appreciated you know people would and I met a lot of such interesting people I mean everybody from people who were you know shaman to um there was some pretty you know uh crazy shenanigans that went on, you know, um, at the time. And some people that, I, I mean, everyone from Tanya Harding, <laughs> and then come down that she was interesting to me, but that's like one of the funniest stories I ever tell. I, I lit her Newport cigarette for her, like I do for all the former <laughs> Olympic athletes I would see at Tano at 7 a.m., you know. <laughs> this Okay, so I'm just, there's like a theme here, which is that, you went to the theater school for two years and then all of a sudden you had to leave. Um, while you might have otherwise been processing your grief about that, you had to go all of a sudden process with your mom because she lost her yeah. second husband. And then you moved to New York to get that life going. And then 9-11 happened and you were working at the World Trade Center. So yeah. you have had major griefus interruptus. It's true. Yeah. I um I think and I and I've recognized in my life that I have a hard time like getting things done that aren't in my normal routine, like say like um getting my car inspected. You know, it's like once a year and it's like, you know. So when things like that happen, it takes me a long time to regroup. Uh and you know, I'm not going to, you know, sit here and say that I'm, um, 
that it, you know, these things like ruined my life in any way, shape or form, you know, I, I'm, I'm so lucky that, uh, I, you know, I've been in the circumstances that I've been in and that I have a great family and that, um, you know, I always had a bit of a safety net, not like some people, like I didn't really have a safety net. Like I felt like in New York, I couldn't do theater because I wasn't independently wealthy and I, and there was just no place to, um, you know, you really, it just doesn't exist anymore. You know, if you notice people who go to New York and become directors and, uh, you know, actors are either, you know, inherit that position. Yeah, they're all, yeah. they all have another way of making money. Even the, yeah. even the uh, Celia Keenan Bolgers of the world don't, I mean, it's, it's you cannot, yeah, you cannot yeah. make a living even if you're on Broadway. It's really sad. Right. It's true, you know, and it's, uh, and it just became, uh, I just became disenchanted with it, you know? I was like, uh, I mean, I still love the theater, you know? And I was, like I said, I was really lucky. I had, you guys were talking about those monologue books, you know? Like, uh, Jocelyn Baird is the woman who edited all of those books, which I didn't know, but she was someone who I did theater with when I was, like, in high school. She's who, who she picked my audition monologues, and she... Um, you know, I'm still in contact with her. She's a playwright and she went to Yale. She coaches kids on how to get into, um, programs now. Um, stuff that I was like, what is my brand? I don't yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, that kind of thing. But it's like, I, uh, commercial theater, I guess was, um, exciting to me in a certain way, but, uh, it was you know, it was other theater that I liked too. And I don't think it was just theater. I think it was just art, you know? And I think it was like art and life is what I've discovered, you know, like everything is art. You can make anything artistic. And I think that's kind of what I um, do. I just uh, haven't shaped it in a way like I need to write a book. You haven't been able to shape it because you've had to spend mm. a lot of time in reaction mode, you know, to various losses. That. Yeah, like the whole 9-11 thing, I, you know, I remember I didn't tell anyone that for years. You know, it was just something that, I mean, my friends knew. Um, there was a, there was an Edward Ryan who died that day, who uh, was from Westchester. And, oh, my God. Uh, he lived wow. in Scarsdale. And so there were people like my old boss, uh, Alyssa, who uh, was a harpist and a composer who I worked for as an, a personal assistant. And, you know, she just heard, like, names read off. She knew that's where I worked. You know, we didn't have – very few people had cell phones. I ran into one of her three sons, and she, he was like, we got to call my mother. <laughs> and I was like – she literally was – she was afraid to call my mom. She was like, that was the only contact number I had for you was your house phone, and I didn't want to upset her. And, and I was like, oh, my God, she thought I was dead. Um, and you and, and you well like, could have been, in a sense. I, I, I well could have been, you know. Uh it was a, it, yeah, it was a, it was a rough, it was a rough day. You know, I've had better. And uh, it was my first day back after like 10 days of vacation. And uh, we opened, there was a mall uh, in the building six where the big divot down to the path trains wound up, you know, the, the second tower that fell. And uh, luckily, you know, we were really lucky. We, I, um, 
we locked ourselves in at first. I mean, we didn't have any sort of clue what was going on, you know, when you were sort of in it, even it, it wasn't until we got to the seaport that we realized that there was planes being flown into the building. You know, I was like, we heard the second plane and we crossed the street and we saw the second building on fire. But at that point we thought somebody was like dropping bombs or shooting missile, you know, we couldn't, you know, come up with the, the idea of someone flying planes into the building. And, uh, and I was like, we're, you know, what do I, what do we do? You know, I was like, we're dead. And I was all right with it actually, you know, it was a, it was a strange feeling, but I was like, I'm okay with that. Like, I'm not going to spend my last moments here um, screaming, yelling, running, like, you know, there was like this peacefulness about it. And I remember my nephew had been born, my sister's second son who lives here and I had never met him. And so that was the only like little thing I thought about as a regret. And then um, luckily we were okay, you know, and it was a, a long, you know, process of sort of also from my loft, I could see this, you know, smoke stack for the next, you know, three weeks. And um, I even that day, I didn't really process anything until I got to a friend's house and I, I they were all there watching the news and I laid down behind them. They were like sitting on a futon and I like fell asleep my adrenaline like finally ran out and then I woke up and I went home to my loft and uh, the two girls that lived there, Lily and uh, Rebecca were there and they just like grabbed me. And I don't think I stopped crying for like two days. Like I didn't leave the house. I didn't do anything. Um, you know, I talked to my uh, mother, but it was sort of like I was at work. So it was like, you know, and I was responsible for other people and I, um, I felt like I also had to advocate for those people in the moment, you know, when they were like, Oh, you know, well, you can come work at, you know, fifth Avenue that day. And I was like, yeah, they're not going to work anywhere today, you know? Um, and it was, uh, so I didn't tell anybody because people's reactions were so strong and I didn't want to like tell the story all the time, you know? And so I just didn't tell anybody for a long time. And I realized when I did, that it was actually helpful, you know, to talk about it and to talk about the, uh, the impact of it. And I think that it, you know, made me a little more, um, maybe, maybe careless or in, uh, living, but also really living, like really living, you know, in the moment, you know, knowing what that meant. Um, Nothing like a little, you know, little terrorist flying a plane into your building to wake you up. Yeah. yeah. So that was yet the third or the fourth thing, which is that you graduated from school three years ago. I don't know if you were what you were planning to do when you left, but then the pandemic happened. Oh, yeah. Not even three years ago. It was a year ago. Oh, oh that's when you were done was a year ago. Yeah, it was May. Wow, I went back God. to school in 2000, I guess it was 2019. I went for, so I got a bachelor's degree, but I went to DePaul for two years and I went there for a year and a half. So I somehow finished a four-year degree in three and a half years. Okay. But um, yeah, I had enough credits. So I was like, bye. And 
Yeah, I was uh, stage managing for them a production of, they were doing Little Shop of Horrors, which was um, really interesting stage managing and just sort of doing everything for for these kids. And I felt so terrible for them. And I mean, everything is still there. Um, like all the props we made, everything is just, I keep thinking of the Titanic. It's just yeah. like frozen in time because they decided that even in spring, they were going to be fully remote because they didn't, they didn't think it was fair to leave it to the last minute to decide. They wanted people to be able to get their sort of ducks in a row and, and know what to expect. Cause I think that was, really one of the hardest things on any students or kids during the whole pandemic was like every, you know, they didn't from month to month, they didn't know what was coming next, you know? I mean, I kind of feel like that's has been sort of the stopping and starting of Edward Ryan. You've sort of stopped and started and stopped and started. And, and now you, you, you started school, you finished school and you were, and so the kids too, but also you stopping and starting. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think that, you know, I have a little more, um, I have some more skills to deal with it. You know, I have a little more, um, it's like my work at school, you know, just cultivating creativity was this class that really affected me and sort of made me realize that I was more than just a theater artist probably. And, um, do you remember those photographs in the like nineties of like different, uh, like the Beastie Boys or Run DMC and they were on rooftops of buildings mm-hmm. So this guy, John uh, Nordell, was that photographer. He worked for all these different, um, It's he's not the person you would expect to be taking the photographs, but he was a teacher at the school. And he taught this class and I thought this class is so annoying. Like, it's going to really drive me crazy. And all the kids were really like, uh, they railed against like every assignment. There was a lot of work. And we weren't allowed to buy anything. We had to make everything. And, um, you know, he gave us a lot of art supplies, but we had to, like, build vessels to, like, carry them in and um, incorporate every handout somehow creatively into this into this book. And, I mean, it was a lot of work. And I would, I would, I would stay up till 3 o'clock in the morning, like, you know, making these things and doing this stuff. And he was like, you know, your work is, like, incredible it's so and it's it's so much beyond you know what we're t- some of the kids are doing here and i was like well it should be you know i'm like I, I i have a little few more resources than they have in their dorm and you know but um but the kids too they were uh sometimes inspired in that uh to ins- you know these kids to inspire them was like such a a, a great thing because they were so some of them were so disenchanted. And then by the end of this class, you could just see that they had all found like what they were good at, like what sort of creative artistic thing that they really connected with and that they loved and that they were just excelling in. And it was so exciting. Like it was really a, it was a great class. Um, I love that. It was called cultivating creativity. Yeah. Good class. And I mean, you know, we either studied artists or, um, or, or techniques uh, from Zen, has anyone at Zen, uh, what is it? Zen doodle or oh, yeah, uh-huh. Zen tangle or Zen doodle? Yeah, there's Zen tangles. Yeah, yeah uh-huh. that, like he was a Zen tangle instructor, so you know, we started with that. We did like, uh, um, we studied like Liechtenstein and like uh, and his like sort of pop flags, and we each took a, a country, we were assigned a country and their flag, and we you know created you know work from that. It was really a, a, a great class. 
um, but hard, you know, uh, these kids were not used to being asked to do, to actually like work. I mean, the school itself knows who their students are. I think a lot of them have, you know, different accommodations and, um, different, you know, struggles or opportunities. And, you know, they come from, like I said, underserved communities and, um, places. And it's like one of those places where, you know, um, if I, like Frank, the, the guy who ran the, the, the program was like, I couldn't let this kid not graduate, you know, you know, like there's no way. And, you know, whether it's paying his tuition bill or, you know, or raising money, whatever needs to happen. And, uh, and, you know, he got me right. Frank got me writing again. I directed, I took a directing class, which was a uh, great read, like, um, you know, some great books and, uh, it was fun. You know, I really sort of was inspired to just be creative. And I looked at some MFA programs and I auditioned at Yale, um, and I, I think I realized I did not get in, but I realized before that that I and Ruth was like, do you, you, do you really want to go there? And I was like, you know, it's Yale, you know, and she's like, mm. and when I went there, I realized what she meant. It was like, first of all, it's a shithole oh. Talk about bad facilities, you know, while you're waiting in an old computer lab with like broken computers stacked in the corner to go on this girl from West Virginia. She's this young girl. She's like, oh, hi, I'm from West Virginia. I was like, oh, is this is what you thought Yale <laughs> You know, um, and I sort of felt like they had given the keys, you know, it was like the opposite of the theater school. It was like the kids were running that place. Mm. I mean, they held all the power. And I think it's it's sort of the way things are going these days, you know, with the Me Too movement. Teachers are, one of the teachers at Yale said, we are the only teachers that have to teach our students naked sometimes. Wait, 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 what? <laughs> we are the only teachers that have to teach their students naked sometimes. The students are naked or the teachers are? The students. What for? You know, like... Oh, uh, for Zoom? I mean, on Zoom, they're naked? No, I mean, just different productions where, you oh. know, they are directing oh. a student who is nude. And that's why there's intimacy coaches and all of that okay. stuff oh now, God. you know, to protect them. Because, I mean, you can obviously see working in close proximity yeah. with a naked student that could open you up to problems. Like at the theater suits. school, like what did, <laughs> what did cat call it? A spontaneous sex on sweaty mats. Mm-hmm, I mean, there was a mm-hmm. lot of groping and touching going on. Yeah. That was like, yeah. you know, probably, you know, innocent, but you know, could certainly have been a trigger for some people. Oh uh, Yeah, sure. You know, like Trudy shoving her thumb in my mouth. Oh yeah. <laughs> not, yeah good. not good. Not good. Yeah. Um, so that was the thing. I had three. I'm sorry. No, go I had ahead. Three absences, and I was, and I, my self use was damaged by habitual use. Was the other thing Wait. on my letter when I got cut from the theater school? Wait, what? My self use was da- is damaged by habitual use. I don't understand what that means. Well, neither did I. I mean, but as I think at that age, I just thought, well, I'm damaged. Weird. I also can tell you that Rick Murphy, when we were doing, um, said a very similar thing that David said to you. So I'm doing space work. Rick comes up to me, whispers in my ear, what are you doing here? Drop out and go see the world. Yeah. And I'm like, it was kind of like, I'm like doing work. 
first year, second year, I don't remember, he whispered stuff in my ear, get, why are you here, go, go see the world, or something, and I was like, what is happening, so, yeah, you, you know, I loved Rick Murphy, I mean, he was just, like, magic, right, I mean, this is not a pipe dream, was, like, the best, the best oh, show, he, so, uh, in captivity, it was called Free Will and Wanton Lust back then. That was the other thing I wanted to tell you. The That's Nikki Schiller right. Play. It, it was free it changed will. names. Oh no, no, no. but those are two of... different plays. Raised in Captivity. But they, but the monologues from this Act Two of Free Will and Wanton Lust oh. are in Raised they in Captivity. They are. They are. Because oh. I did. I think I, those, I did one. I did one for my showcase. <laughs> those huge ass monologues about spitting on the sidewalk and about. The conversations with his penis, you know, and like, um, don't judge me. Yeah, I was like watching that because I loved that show that Nick Bowling did, and I took my stepfather to see it. He came into the theater school; it's like the only thing they ever saw at the theater school, you know. And this, who was in the tutu? Yes, somebody like, um, was it Amy? It, it was. I think it was Susan O'Lear, wasn't it? Or wait, hmm. no, really Susan short. Bennett. Susan Bennett. It was Susan Bennett because she she. Uh, we're she, we're going to be talking to her, and she wrote me something, and it said something about Being, being in that show. Yeah, yeah. I, I just remember her saying, like, after a while, scotch tastes just like pudding, you know, <laughs> and just being like, you know, that show is just a lot to digest. But I just thought, like, Nick Bowling was so talented. I mean, so talented, I also yeah. my other crew assignment was besides I, landscape of the body. Um, which, I mean, I remember John, so that was a fun, I have a funny story about that too, but uh, was uh, Les Liaisons Dangereuses was his other workshop. And Jason Beck and I were co-stage managers and we had to wear like full powder, you know, the white wigs with the curls and the high heels and like right. the freaking outfit. And then he needed somebody to play the major domo who doesn't really have any lines. And I just stood on that, on like stage for the entire show, like just stood there and uh, <laughs> did nothing. But, um, but you know, I, it was, it was a great experience. I mean, that's where I really, Kat is somebody who was really nice to me at the theater school. And like, you know, we sort of reconnected and, and Sarah Sharpar too. I remember being like at the gala. How did you not go to one of the galas? You know, I, I, I heard that I, one. Yeah, I never, I, I don't know anything about that. <laughs> You were like, fuck that, I'm not going. No, no, I it mean, was never invited. I mean, I, I, not everybody was. So we had to go. No, we had to so, go. We had to, like, so you, had to, you were so invited to go, I think. You, you were invited to chaperone a star, which is what I chaperoned they, Edward James almost. But then I don't remember anything else about that. <laughs> they made us go. And we had to, we held, like, balloons or something. When they walked, when they left the Blackstone Hotel and they went to the Real Reston Theater, we made, like, line, like, a. Uh, I don't know, we held balloons or something that like they walked through or whatever. Because I remember Sarah Sharp, they I told her this too. I after I saw her episode, I sent her a message and she's like, Yeah, I remember you. And I was like, There was a bunch of older people, you guys were up to something, and you were like, You're coming with us. And we were, you know, bad little kitties, and she was like, Oh, real classy. But um I remember sitting in the green room and getting somebody coming down and screaming at us because somebody was smoking marijuana. And like in cold storage, like they could smell the smoke. And we were all like, nobody did anything. And I, I swear to God, it was Gregory Hines. <gasps> oh, I had to have been. Yeah. Had to have been. But like him coming out and being like, I heard you guys got in trouble for somebody smoking weed. And we were like, bastard. 
I remember being so excited, so excited to 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 see Melinda Dillon, uh, because of you know a Christmas story, the mother, oh. uh, and she came out and she was her character in print in Prince of Tides. Like she was like, "Hi, I'm Melinda Dillon. I took too much medication today." Like it was just like right. being so, and then realizing I'm like, all these people are just regular people, yeah, you know, <laughs> like. So wait, so did the has the Alexander technique helped you with healing, or what's what's your interest in it? So I, you know, I I, I contacted Ruth because I uh, when I decided to do theater again, I did a musical, and uh, the musical is Falsettos, which is a very small cast and a lot of singing, and I was like, I hadn't sang in a long time, and. I just wanted to get my voice in shape. So I think Linklater always, you know, helped with singing as well. And I found Ruth and I went, I always say she hijacked my lessons and turned them into Alexander technique lessons. And, um, you know, I certainly found it really useful. I remember working on, a um, the play abundance and, you know, I've done a lot of character work and we moved from a rehearsal space into a performance space. And all of a sudden, you know, the soft spoken guy, they were like, yeah, it's not working in here. We can't like hear you. And I, I just remember like um, him saying to me, coming out and doing like whatever scene again, and him being like, "That was great. What the hell did you do?" You know. And I just remember like thinking, okay, you know, Alexander work and inhibiting and directing and um, sort of trusting that it would work. And I think that's some of the work, but. Um, she also did some workshops and, uh, you know, they did Christine Stevens is another teacher who was teaching at uh, Brown Trinity rep. And, um, they asked me to do some Shakespeare text. Her and her husband had found, uh, like a local Shakespeare, Shakespeare, a Hampshire Shakespeare. And they weren't really involved anymore, but they were like, Oh, you should go to those auditions. And I was like, I hate Shakespeare, you know? Uh, and I'm glad I did. That's where I met Frank. He was the costumer and I played Trinculo in the, um, tempest there and it was a part i really liked and it was like a lot of fun and i was like oh wow i still i'm not sure what the tempest is about but um, <laughs> nobody is no nobody really i is. was like didn't help that the prospero would forget like paragraphs of his like lines in the show and i was like well i can't blame him this is a lot it's a lot it's but, a lot yeah and, and there was a training center here so missy vineyard who uh, has written some really great books and she had a training center and that's where ruth um trained and uh i was also you know i also worked with with missy some and was sometimes ruth's body at her lessons with missy and um yeah you know working in retail a lot uh being on my feet all day i had a lot of uh i'd get up in the morning and my heels would really hurt i had a lot of lower back pain um a lot of that stuff has sort of gone away you know subsided and uh, i think a lot of it has to do with the Alexander technique. I mean, it's just, um, it really can help in every aspect of your life. I just feel better. I always, you know, I always, when I'm late, you know, driving, I always describe it as like going to my Alexander lesson and, you know, someone slams on the brakes in front of me and I'm like, oh God, you know, and like on the way home, if somebody slams on the brakes in front of me, I'm like, all right, this is my break. And like, <laughs> yeah. Keep going. You know, it's like, a, um, yeah, it just helps. Unfortunately, we have to end, and I, I have a hard out because I have a, another meeting. But this is, I, I, I really. Out. I've never heard of a it. Hard oh, yeah, out, hard yeah. out. Hard stop. I, 
I so enjoy this conversation. I wish we could go on. Um, thank Me you too. so much thank for you. taking the time. It's really, really fun. And you guys, your podcast, I, t- I just have to say, it's really, and I've heard other people say it too, it's really helped me like put things in perspective, like, um, you know, validate a lot of things that I've felt. And, and uh, I really, really, from the bottom of my heart, I thank you. It's been, it's, it's really been great. Oh, good. I love it. Oh, we're so happy. And I promote you. Next week on I Survive Theater School, we talk to Dawn Vanessa Brown. If you liked what you heard today, please subscribe, give us a five-star rating, and write a great review. I Survive Theater School is an Undeniable Inc. production. Jen Bosworth Ramirez and Gina Polici are the co-hosts. This episode was produced, edited, and sound mixed by Gina Polici. For more information about us, you can go to our website at undeniablewriters.com. You can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Thanks! Thank you.